I was able to combine the human interest aspect of the story with the numerical part of the story and combine it into something that in the end, I remember the baseball editor of .com was, was pretty pleased with uh, how that one turned out. Journalists have long used statistics and data to flesh out their reporting, but sometimes a close look at the numbers can be key to revealing a powerful human story. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Mark Simon is a research analyst and content producer for Sports Info Solutions. He's also the host of the Journalism Salute, a podcast he started a few months back spotlighting people and organizations with journalism that matters. Mark recently said some nice things about It's All Journalism on social media, which, for those of you who are interested, is always a good way to get our attention and to get an invitation to be a guest on our podcast. Welcome to our podcast, Mark. Hi, thanks for having me. Just to be more specific, the Lincoln Lie episode was the one that got me and the one that I said some cool things about because I thought that the uh, the topic was super interesting and I'm, I'm looking forward to eventually reading her book. It's a pretty fascinating book. I, I do read some history, but it turned out to be a really interesting book and kind of fascinating, especially when you contrast it to a lot of the, uh, you know, the fake news, the technology of disseminating the news and, and sort of put it in that historical context. So anyway... You know, if you listen to our podcast, you know that we like to start things off by asking the journalist is journalist journey. What got you interested in journalism and how did you end up at Sports Info Solutions? My career path is, is a long and I think interesting one that really starts, I grew up in New York City in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I'm a product of the New York City public school system. And while I was one of those kids in Little League who was the worst athlete on their team, who was the kid who batted 12th and played right field. But you were the scorekeeper. I could, <laughs> yes, I could read and I could do math as well as anyone. And that is something that certainly carried through my academic life. And it opened a lot of doors for me. And I started reading the newspaper when I was six. And I started reading baseball books maybe a year or so later. When I get involved in things, I tend to immerse pretty deeply. And with journalism, that was what happened. I remember doing a newsletter with one of my friends when we were 10. Eventually that morphed into working for the college newspaper and radio station at the College of New Jersey, a fine public school in Ewing, New Jersey, just outside Trenton near Princeton. Graduated with a journalism degree, was set up by a professor, my mentor in the field, Dr. Robert Cole, with a job with the Trenton Times where I was a sports writer for uh, about six and a half years. And the thing that I guess turned my life was a baseball game between the Mariners and the Indians in 2001, where the Mariners were winning the game by 12 runs. And the Indians came back and won. And this was a famous game that was on ESPN Sunday night baseball. And I got home from the movies and I saw what happened. And I was like, that reminds me of something. And there's a writer, a famous baseball writer, Hall of Fame baseball writer named Jason Stark, who at the time was writing a column for ESPN.com about useless baseball stats. Like every week he would recap the best in useless baseball information. And he would take contributions from readers. So I sent one in and I said, Jason, that is the greatest comeback in baseball history since the time that Charlie Brown went to the mound with a 50 to nothing lead with two outs in the ninth inning, relieving Peppermint Patty and gave up 51 runs to lose the game. Jason liked that. He ran it in his article, like big three or four paragraphs. And I wrote Jason back. I said, Jason, I don't know you. You don't know me. But I was wondering if you could just help me out. Could you just give me the name of the person who does the hiring for the TV show Baseball Tonight? I've always been interested in working on a show like that. 
and he wrote back and he gave me a name and I wrote that person and that person wrote back with another name. And about six months later, I was at ESPN interviewing and arguing why I thought that Keith Hernandez, who was my dad's favorite baseball player, should be in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And that led to a job that lasted nearly 16 years there. And after a time, some people might have noticed that ESPN's interest in baseball has dissipated a little bit. And they have a relationship with this company, Sports Info Solutions, where I currently work. And uh, the connections that I made while I was working at ESPN led me to come here. They were looking for someone who could take the information that they put together. This is a company that puts together information for major league teams and NFL teams. And they wanted to take the public facing element of that and make it kind of more fan friendly and more fan appealing and more relatable to the general public to allow people to get interested. And that's the gist of what I do right now. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of way of translating information into something that's much more easily understandable, the same way that someone would do that for, I don't know, like this may be oversimplifying it, but something like taking the Affordable Care Act and making it simplified for people to understand or taking things in any sort of industry and making them easy for people to understand. That's what I do with baseball statistics. Wow. Your audience, the people who you know go to Sport Info Solutions, what are they using this information for just to sort of like fill out their baseball knowledge? Are they using it for, are they using it for betting? Are they using it for a fantasy? So I think the idea in terms of what I do is we're trying to make people smarter and better informed fans, whether it's baseball or football, and we're actually starting to branch into basketball as well. We sell our data to teams, Major League Baseball teams, NFL teams, to allow them to better make decisions related to should they sign a player, should they trade for a player, or game strategy, should they use a defensive shift against a particular player, that's become a big thing. If you've seen the movie Moneyball, that's kind of us, the people that took the Oakland A's and turned them into a winning team. We play a role in, in that. But as for me, I think it's just making our information more publicly accessible. Yes, absolutely, some people are using it for gambling information. We actually have a portion of the company that is devoted to that. I look at it, though, as just providing better, as one producer at ESPN once described it to me, access and discovery to the game and allowing people an insight into the game that they might not have previously had, whether that game's baseball or football. What's your favorite baseball data to look at? So our company specializes in defense. We have a statistic that we call defensive runs saved. Like offense, you can measure pretty easily in baseball. You have batting average, you have home runs, you have all this stuff now about how hard a ball was hit and how far a ball was hit. Pitching, you have all these different ways, strikeouts and ERA and different baseball statistics. For defense, the numbers lag behind for a long time, and now defense is starting to catch up. And we are able to put a defensive value on every player on the field. Like we can tell you how often a play should have been made based on a series of different parameters that are involved in it. And that allows us to determine, like, who were the really good defensive players and who were not the good defensive players. And it allows us to do things like one big topic for, for those that might not be as familiar with baseball. One big thing in baseball the last few years has been pitch framing and the ability of the catcher to catch the pitch in a way that it makes it look like he's getting an, a, a pitch over the plate when the pitch is actually not over the plate. We call it pitch framing. 
and we're able to ascertain from our data who are the best pitch framers and who are the worst pitch framers. And I just think that that's pretty cool because it allows you to watch the game. I watch the game completely differently than I did five years ago. Do you enjoy it more or do you enjoy it differently, do you think? I think I enjoy it differently because in whatever I've been in, whether it was covering high school sports at the newspaper level or working at ESPN where you're covering the biggest national stories and everything is about getting eyeballs to the TV or eyeballs on the dot-com page, I always gravitated to the hidden gems or the undervalued or the, I guess, the market inefficiencies of the world. And so it allows me to find more of those or different types of those than I was previously finding before. I can think of examples with things like catchers who you didn't realize were as valuable as they turned out to be because they had this skill. They had really quick hands that they could make a pitch look like a strike that wasn't necessarily a strike. And yeah, so I I would say I watch it differently than I do and I enjoy it. Sure. Absolutely. I'm a baseball fan, but I'm not the baseball fan that like I can sit through a bad game. Not that I won't sit through a bad game, for various reasons, but I enjoy a baseball game that suddenly gets very interesting, that that something develops and something changes, those sort of intangibles. You know, I view baseball games sometimes as stories that sometimes are very boring and they're very like, you know, A to B, A to B, A to B. But then suddenly things begin to change and you kind of get this feeling of this sort of story unfolding, a bigger story. And that's one of the things that, that I always found appealing about it. At the same time, I also appreciate the role that numbers play in sports, but in baseball in particular, baseball's all, all about numbers. If you've got that sort of, you know, I don't know what it is that screw loose <laughs> where that is a thing that, that that's the itch that, that you love having scratched. I mean, baseball's that sport. Yep. So let me say this too. I love, love, love human interest writing and reporting, and I've done a lot of it. And I try to avoid being pigeonholed into the idea that I'm a numbers guy. Uh, It's actually funny, when I started at ESPN, I can remember my boss in like the first or second week looking over to me and saying, that's the journalist. And I was like, no, I don't want to be completely pigeonholed into that either. I like everything. Let me give you one that I particularly liked. In 2016, there was an Indians pitcher named Ryan Merritt, who was like the 15th or 16th or 17th guy on the staff. Due to a series of injuries deep into the playoffs, Ryan Merritt got thrown in to pitch in what was the Indians' biggest game of the year to try and win the pennant against the Blue Jays. And I asked the baseball editor at .com, can I do one of those like childhood parallel to modern day for him type of stories? Like, was there an aspect of his backstory that is relatable to the current day? So I spent the morning reaching out to a whole bunch of different people from his hometown and eventually got the best man at his wedding and his high school baseball coach. And they told me some really great stories. And one of the stories that they told me was that when Ryan was a little kid, they used to throw rocks at trees and Ryan could hit any spot on the tree that he wanted to hit, whereas the other kids couldn't do that. And as it turned out in the game that day, Ryan Merritt pitched pretty well. And the thing that he did best was he was able to put his pitches in exactly the right spot. And our company, the company that I work for now that I wasn't working for then, has a measure that allows us to kind of check on that. How often is the pitcher hitting the catcher's glove 
within a, a small amount of space. And sure enough, Ryan Merritt rated in like the 80th, 90th percentile in that. He was really good. That's something, a piece of data, a piece of information that I wouldn't have been able to get as just, you know, Joe, ordinary human interest reporter. I was able to combine the human interest aspect of the story with the numerical part of the story and combine it into something that in the end, I remember the baseball editor of .com was, was pretty pleased with uh, how that one turned out. Yeah, there's nothing like a great human baseball story. There's nothing like it. And it's like to the point where I was at a game with my son and we were watching it and it was like you could sort of feel the game beginning to turn and it just kind of said – I turned to him and I said, yeah, this is what baseball does sometimes. There's this feeling of the direction of the game needs to change to make the story better. There's these games that I've been to where that sort of happened. And there are plenty of other games that are just like any other that just – the team that's supposed to win wins and the, the team that, that's supposed to lose loses. So, you, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about your new podcast. This isn't the first podcast that you've done. You did one at ESPN. Tell me about that. Sure. Eric Carabell, who is known at ESPN as uh, one of the top fantasy sports people, used to co-host a baseball podcast. It was called Baseball Today. And it was the predecessor to ESPN's podcasts now are very personality driven, like they're big stars to do them. It was the predecessor to a podcast that's now hosted by Buster Only. But at the time, Eric needed co-host people. I was one of the people recruited to do that. And I did that for two years. We had the listenership on that worth probably the sum of anything that I will ever do the rest of my, my life. And I learned a lot about how to do it. I had been on radio in college. I'd done play-by-play broadcasting for a very long time as well. But I enjoy podcasting for the creative challenge of it. I like that we could go and we could literally do a show about anything that I felt was cool, interesting, or fun about baseball. And I literally had like kind of a, a blank slate to pick from for that, for that. And we would do all sorts of, of weird things. And it's, it was a fun way to do a show. And it allowed me to raise my profile in the sports statistics community a nice amount. And it's, that's a fun field to be in. And we did that for a couple of years. And it was, it was great. Because I'm a podcaster, I'm going to pick at something you said there because I want to see what I can can draw out. You said that the numbers there dwarfed anything else that you would probably do in your career. As a podcast, what what do you credit that to? Was it the platform you were on? Was it, you know, the content? It was entirely the platform we were on. Uh, I remember the producer saying to me, I don't want to say what the number was that we did, but he was like, you could do that by accident. Just being on ESPN, I think people know it. But until you've like worked there, you don't really know the power of the, the four letters. Being at ESPN is wonderful. I had a great almost 16-year run there. Uh, and those four letters carry weight. They carry weight when I try and get guests from my current baseball version of a podcast. They carry weight when I have conversations with people in the baseball community. And yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's the same thing as... CNN or whatever, every, every network has its perceptions, but ESPN in the sports world carries a lot of weight, certainly. And, and that's, that's what, uh, that's what built our audience. Yeah. Brand recognition that's going to, well, it's going to open doors for you as, like you said, for your guests, but also because you're identified with it, people are maybe more willing. Yeah. I, I remember that guy. I want to go talk to him. Yeah. He's got a yeah. podcast. I want to, I want to talk to him. Yeah. The reason I kind of bring this up is you know, as we sort of talk about podcasting, and I know there are a lot of people I always run into who 
you know, they're always telling me, yeah, I've got a podcast idea. I've got, a, I want to do a podcast. And, you know, I know many podcasters in the, in the Washington DC area, for, for example, when you get a group together, the, one of the first things they say is how can I grow my audience? How can I grow my audience? And, you know, the, the fact is, you know, there are places like ESPN that just have an automatic level of entry that you're not going to have by just launching your own podcast in your bedroom. That's just the way the world works. And there are podcasts that if you're a famous person or if you have a lot of followers, for however however you got them through through your work or your, your celebrity or whatever, that's going to have a, a certain level of, of audience that, you know, your, your standard run-of-the-mill podcast isn't going to get. It's certainly starting out. It's certainly an advantage. Now, you do a, you do a podcast also with uh, Sports Info Solutions? Yes, we have a football one that uh, my boss actually hosts. He's a former NFL scout, uh, and he hosts it with someone in the football community. I have a baseball podcast here that we started last year. We're about 54, 55 episodes in. We called it something very simple, uh, the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. Uh, I've wanted, I essentially wanted people who typed in our company name or who typed in baseball podcast to hit us, you know, in, in the right kind of search engine scenario. People have commented to me about the simplicity of the name. But yeah, we, um, that one is different because, as I, as I said, I'm not at ESPN. So I don't have the, the four letters helping me out. That one is a baseball show that is very largely guest-driven. I consider the guests the stars of each episode. We get current major leaguers. We get uh, sports writers and sports broadcasters. My contacts from ESPN have come in very handy with those. And we try to have intelligent baseball conversation. And then the other area that we delve into with players is how do you do what you do on the defensive side? How are you able to make this catch that nobody else can make? How are you able to field this ball that nobody else could field? How are you able to do the pitch framing thing that I talked about? And I found that players are very open and willing to talk shop like that because it plays to their strengths. It's, there's no gotcha element to it. And I think we've put together a, a pretty decent little show. Professional athletes, and by and large, a, a lot of times you get, you get sort of these canned answers. So do you feel that, you know, the way you kind of describe it, it sounds like you're, you're coming at them maybe with a different a topic that they would love to somebody to ask them about, but they, yes, that they're not going to, they're not going to, the average reporter is not going to ask them or have the Absolutely. opportunity to. Absolutely. And I feel that that's like, you want to look for differentiation when you're creating a podcast, I think. And I think that's one of our points of differentiation that I'm going to ask questions that you haven't been asked before or that you get asked very rarely um, but they're not going to be your, they're, they're not going to be answers. They're not going to be things where you can give me a cliche. You might give me a cliche in the first question that I ask you, but you're not going to give me a cliche when I, when I say to you, this guy hit this ball to this spot. He ran over a hundred feet to catch it. Can you describe all of the different aspects that go into that play, starting with where you were positioned, why you were positioned there to your actual making of the catch. And those guys are able to do it. And they, they seem to like doing it, at least the ones that, that I've been able to get on the, the podcast. And I think we've, we've left a good impression with them. They've certainly left a good impression with us. I think it's because they're, I mean, they're professionals, they're technicians. They think about what they do at a level that we don't about the way they play. And so when they need to make adjustments, when they need to, you know, figure out a solution to a problem that they, they maybe run into, and then they, they discover some sort of success out of it. 
I mean, that, for them, that's probably, you know, a huge win. But it's not something that, that somebody's going to ask them about or they're normally going to talk about, except maybe with like a coach or, or a trainer or something or another player. They might get at something in the moment after a play happens, but it's not something where they're going to, they're going to have 15 seconds to give an answer. We've had players on where their answers have gone 90 seconds, two minutes, uh, describing different things that they've done. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's one of the things about podcasting. I mean, it's certainly something that I've, I've noticed in the podcast that we do. I really enjoy when a guest starts to go into the weeds, I, I'm all there for following them. I want to hear the the particulars of how they, you know, they, they plot out a, a video shoot or, or how they're, you know, what they're thinking about when they're composing a, a photograph during a breaking news situation, their thought processes and, and uh, how they prepared themselves for it, things like that. So I love process. I will listen to a process podcast about almost anything. There are a couple that I particularly like. I like ones that are about things like stand-up comedy. There are a number of comedians that are doing things like that. There is yours, which does things with journalism and how how reporters go about producing stories. Anything that has a process aspect to it, even if I don't necessarily like the subject matter, I like process. I don't like building. Like I wouldn't be into it if it was like scientific or constructive, but uh, mental process, I'm like fascinated. You know, you think about all the TV shows of, you know, cooking shows and, you know, home building shows and, and just videos of people putting together an engine. That you just, it's the creative process. Yes. Is I, I think what, what kind of attracts people. So, anywho, I guess we're competitors. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I try not to think of it like that. No, there's plenty of room in this space. Trust me. That was the appeal to it. If we're going to segue to that subject. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Tell me about what, you know, dear God. Yeah. I can ask you, why would you want to do a podcast about <laughs> journalism? So. During the pandemic, I moved from working at work to working at home, which bought me an extra 45 minutes a day. And I'm at home for the foreseeable future. I also lost an opportunity that I have, a couple of opportunities that I have. One, an entertainment, a couple of entertainment opportunities that typically take up, I don't know, a couple of hours in a given week. And I lost a broadcasting opportunity for sports that I had that required me to be at games that was multiple hours per week. So I had more time. I don't sit still. Like I always look for projects and other things I can do. And I wanted to look for something that was non-sports because all I've done for 25 years is sports, 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 sports. And I wanted to do something that was non-sports and I didn't want to do something that was political because it's just too messy. And I thought about like what my passions were. And certainly I mentioned before, like stand-up comedy or, or uh, different other types of performance. Magic is another one that I, things that I enjoy watching, but there are already podcasts that exist for those. And I went in and typed in journalism into Apple podcasts and there wasn't much that came up. I will say this too. The first time that I hit yours, I actually kind of glossed over it because I think the date at the top was something from 2019. So I was like, all right, that one doesn't necessarily exist. (laughs) And then I went back like a day later and I discovered that it did. And I was like, what I want to do is kind of like this, but not exactly. What I had done during the pandemic was I kept hearing lamestream media, enemy of the people, enemy of the people over and over again. So I started on my Twitter saluting different journalism organizations. So every day would be a different one. And I did it for like 90 straight days, uh, different organization, paragraph description, link, 
And then I said, well, you know, this is becoming kind of rote where I'm just kind of copying and pasting from the about. What could I do where I could really like do something with these groups? Um, and a couple of them had written me like handwritten notes because I paired the tweet with a small donation. And I got a couple of handwritten notes. And I said, you know, I could reach out to these people and I could interview them and I could put it into a podcast kind of form and I could put them all together and, and maybe there would be some people that would listen to it. So I've started that up and I'm now, uh, I tape my ninth episode. My, my ninth episode goes up. It'll be up by the time this will be up. Uh, and it's just, uh, it's been a cool experience. It's good to do something that's non-sports. And I have learned a heck of a lot about all these groups that are fantastic that I previously didn't know anything about. So the most recent one I did was Chalkbeat, the education journalism group. Chalkbeat.org. I talked to Bennett Chipola, who is the editor-in-chief and soon to be publisher there. Spaceship Media was another one that was fascinating to me. Eve Perlman from Spaceship Media, they just put out a book about the gun debate. What they do is they bring together people from groups that are about as different as you can get, like people that are gun control advocates and people that are strongly in the other direction. And they bring them together, not just for a day or two, but for a period of months in Facebook groups and discussions. And then they report out of that. I found that fascinating. She was the first and second ones I did together. She was the second one that I did. We talked to Investigate West, which does great investigative journalism in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Those are examples. Uh, and I know that some of these are things that you probably touched on in your time. I try to, I guess I, I'm doing it for my family and friends, and I'm hoping that, that ideally a few other people latch on. And as you said, there's hopefully room for more than one uh, journalism podcast in the space. And there are others out there, certainly others which are much more legitimate than what we do. But, you know, I, I always thought our podcast was different in that they would get like a reporter in and they would talk about like a political story, but they wouldn't necessarily talk about the process of, you know, covering the news. And that was kind of the direction we sort of started. Yep. But at the same time, you know, you know, as we've done it for so many years and all these other topics kind of emerged, you know, fake media, you know, how to determine truth in, in journalism yep. and, and a lot of the other issues around diversity and, and things like that. We saw that there are a lot of other types of topics that were worth talking about. And the great thing is, and this is what's not necessarily apparent to, the larger populace, there are a lot of journalists, you know, despite the fact that the industry's shrunk in the last few years, there's still a lot of journalists out there doing a r lot of really good work. And so there's always somebody doing something worthwhile to talk to, either about a particular story that they're doing or a particular approach that's new and different. So there's still plenty to do. Yeah, absolutely. The, the reason that I call it the journalism salute, the salute aspect is a tribute to a job that I previously had broadcasting football and basketball at Coast Guard Academy, the military academy in Connecticut, where on a touchdown call, I would say, touchdown, yes, sir. And that was a, a very rewarding job that I had. In fact, I did it while I was at ESPN. So I wanted to carry something from that to now. And I, I just thought salute. And the idea of the podcast is saluting organizations or people that are doing particularly interesting things in the journalism community. Trust me, you're not going to run out of guests. This would not be a conversation with you if we wouldn't touch on baseball and the playoffs and talk a little bit about your thoughts. So 
Let me ask you this before we get into that. I mean, you know, COVID's affected everything. It certainly affected sports. What are your thoughts about the way the, you know, Major League Baseball handle it and the season sort of rolled out? I'm going to stay away from the idea of grading them on it and say simply that they elected to do a plan. They experienced some putting their finger on the stove moments in the early portion of the plan with what happened with the Marlins having to replace essentially 17 players who got coronavirus and the Cardinals had a significant outbreak. And over time, I think that baseball put more steps in place and things were done. I think the seriousness of everything was realized once there was an experience or two experiences that really slowed things down and served as kind of a a deterrent and a threat. And that allowed them to get through the season. They realized that for the playoffs that they needed to put everyone in the same space if they could, because that would give you the best chance of avoiding future virus, as was proven by the NBA and the NHL and WNBA having no cases once they got everyone bubbled up. And I'm looking forward to the postseason finishing. And then hopefully by the time the next time they take the field, people have had some vaccines stuck in their arms and that we won't have to worry as as much as we're currently uh, worried about everything right now. That's where I would say baseball is. What is your takeaway as far as what this meant for the journalists who are covering baseball? Has it been difficult? Has it been just strange? So typically I would go to the ballpark a handful of times in a year to I guess, as I would call it, like play reporter, be a reporter-ish, in a reporter-ish kind of role. And I've just read and and corresponded with a number of them. And I think there are concerns for the future about access. I mean, the Baseball Writers Association, this is talked about. There are concerns about access and that the Zoom interview and the limited access that people have had to players and managers and coaches is going to be a part of the future. And they very much don't want that. I very much don't want that, certainly as someone who tries to talk to baseball people as often as, as he can. But I think that's a big concern because there, right now there are plenty of reporters covering the season and the postseason from home. I know of that for sure. And I think their approach was, let me just get through this and, and next year will be next year. But hopefully the access that people had to players will be restored more fully once the, the vaccines and such are in place. Knock on wood. So we're doing this interview on October 12th. So at this point, it's down to four teams, Tampa Bay, Houston, Los Angeles, and Atlanta. So statistically, (laughs) what are your thoughts about these four teams? So to start with Tampa Bay, and I like Tampa Bay because of this. And I've made this comparison on Twitter, so I know that it works for whatever that's worth. The Tampa Bay Rays are like the high school, and you can fill in the blank here with either cross country or golf. I call them the high school cross-country team that went to the county meet and had their kids finish 8th, 12th, 14th, 16th, and 18th, but won the county because they had the best. They had one guy who was pretty good, and then they had a really good pack of people. That's kind of where you are with the Rays. The Rays don't have any superstars. If, you watch the, if they're in the World Series when you're listening to this and you're watching this and they're on Fox, they're going to try and play up a couple of guys as stars. There's this Randy Rosarena who's had a really good postseason. Brandon Lau, who was very good in the regular season. They're not really stars. They're just good to very good players, and the Rays have a lot of them. They catch the ball, they pitch the ball, and they hit the ball just well enough to be better than you. 
and they have a lot of depth. They have the most depth probably of any team. Houston has a number of veteran star players that were instrumental to their winning the World Series in 2017. And they have a manager that I particularly like that's very well-regarded in baseball, Dusty Baker. The Astros, of course, are not well-regarded because of the cheating scandal that was discovered with regards to them being able to know what was coming, so to speak, in terms of pitches. And a lot of baseball is rooting against them. How much that helped them in those seasons, I think, remains to be seen. I think it definitely helped them some. If the Astros win, they would be the first team to win a baseball championship World Series with a losing record, which is pretty remarkable, but that's what you have this year in the shortened season where everybody made the playoffs. They have some new faces that have been key as well among their pitchers. The Dodgers should win the World Series. They have statistically the best team. They're an outstanding defensive team. They put their guys in the right spots. We actually have statistics that allow us to look at that, and they historically have been good at that. They have superstars. They have Mookie Betts. They have Cody Bellinger. They have Clayton Kershaw, all dynamite players, all of whom Bellinger and Betts can do everything on the field that you would ask them to do. Their issue has just been that they've come up short a few times, and uncharacteristically so in some cases, and the question is whether or not they can get over the hump. Atlanta has a great offensive team and a star player in Ronald Acuna Jr., who in the early stages of his career looks like he's going to be someone who 20 years from now will be saying is a maybe not an all-time great, but something close to it, if you project out as people who like to project baseball statistics do. They have young pitchers who are somewhat untested in a situation of being on the big stage, and it will be interesting to see how those guys perform at the end of games. The Dodgers-Astros series is actually a great series in terms of offensive firepower. There should be a lot of runs scored in that series. So you said that statistically that Los Angeles should win, but the team that statistically should win doesn't always win the championship. In baseball, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that often. The super dominant teams, the Yankees did in the late 90s, early 2000s, but I would say in the last eight to nine years that there's been a lot of parity. You shorten the season to five games or seven games and outcomes become more random. Weird things can happen. The Dodgers never should have lost to the Nationals last year, and they did. And then the Nationals rode that momentum to win the World Series when they were after 50 games. If you had thought they were going to win the World Series, you would have laughed at them. Yeah, the best team doesn't always win with the statistics, which is why I think it's cool that, like, you can't – I don't like to predict that much. I like to predict, like, I'm not, like, obsessed with it. Like, a lot of people get very into trying to project. I just like to make fun, you know, guesses at things. But that's why you can't predict baseball. Yeah, and that's why it's, it, it's fun to watch. You never know. Yep. You just need the games to be a little bit shorter than they are right now. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> Who's the the St. Louis pitcher who just died? It was Gibson? Oh, Bob Gibson, yes. Bob yes. Gibson. I heard something when they were talking about it, and they're just, just talking about how incredibly short their games were. Yes. Back in the day before, before three-and-a-half-minute commercial breaks, the games were played in two-and-a-half hours or less. I would be ecstatic. Right now, the games are averaging about three-and-a-half hours, and I love baseball. I love baseball, but three-and-a-half hours is too long. They need to bring it down somehow. Hopefully they will figure out ways to do that. The worst thing in the world, the worst experience in the world is watching nine innings 
of a very mediocre game and then suddenly it goes into extra innings. <laughs> it's like, I know I had this, I had an argument with a sports writer I knew, who knew and he's like, what, you don't love extra innings? Like, no, <laughs> they can't, if they can't win it in nine innings, I don't want to know. Uh, so you're someone who, for whom the new extra inning rule is, is made for. Exactly. Exactly. I got other things to do. If you guys can't do your work in the the allotted time, then let's, <laughs> move, let's move on. So anyway, we, I didn't, we didn't even mention your book. Tell me about your book real quick. I wrote a book called The Yankees Index in 2016. It was a product of my relationship with the aforementioned many minutes ago, Jason Stark, whose book I proofread. And that kind of led to my getting the project with the company that I had done the proofreading for. It's a history of the New York Yankees as told through the combination of stories and statistics, kind of like the story that I told about Ryan Merritt with the being able to hit any spot and the statistics bearing that out. That's exactly how the book is shaped. It's about 60 to 70 stories with graphics. Each chapter is like four pages and each chapter is keyed by a number like Babe Ruth, 60, Joe DiMaggio, 56, but also Aaron Small, 10 and 0. Aaron Small was a pitcher for the Yankees who was about to retire. He wasn't very good. And then in 2005, just as he was about to retire, he gets called up. He pitches well, and he winds up going 10 and 0. And when I called Aaron Small to interview him for the book, he, and I told him what the book was, he said, you want to include me in a book about Ruth and Mantle and Gehrig and DiMaggio? And I said, yes, exactly. And he laughed. And then we had, a, we had a fun interview. So that's the kind of book. It's published by Triumph Books. You can get it on uh, Amazon. You can find like used booksellers have it. It's a little tough to get right now. But I, if I do say so myself, I strongly recommend it if you're a Yankee fan. Okay. Well, you should have written the blurb on it, I guess. It's the, the Yankee Index. I've been talking to Mark Simon of uh, Sports Info Solutions and his podcast. Check it out. The Journalism Salute. Mark, thanks. This was fun. Yep. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, why not sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter? You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicole Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. Emilia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>